Episode 166, Alicia Wilfert, author of the new book, Little Failures. I have, I have a cornucopia of mistakes. How about that? I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Alicia, her work and her book, look for links in the show notes. You can also enter to win a free signed copy of the book. Look for all of that at markgraven.com slash mistake 166. And now on with the show. Well, hi, and welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Alicia Wilford. She is a leadership, creativity, transitions, and resiliency coach for women. Alicia started her career uh, in, a, in a different way. She was working for uh, an insurance company that was over 100 years old. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be the source of your favorite mistake story today or not, but uh, Alicia moved on from that along the way. Um, she started studying and practicing yoga uh, at the Asheville Yoga Center, um, you know, not just as physical practice, but as uh, part of a spiritual path. She opened a yoga studio and then ended up selling it. And again, I don't know if that's previewing um, what your story might be, Alicia. But before I tell you a little bit more about her, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Oh, Mark, thank you so much for having me. It is really an honor to be here with you and your audience today. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm excited um, to have the conversation today. I, I, I almost feel like I, I don't mean to be implying that you, you have so many mistakes in your background. I mean, we all do. Um, I have I have a cornucopia of mistakes. How about that? Well, you're you're in the right place because I, I appreciate people who um, you know are willing to uh, admit and, and, and think about and, and talk about mistakes. And another reason I'm convinced um, Alicia is in the right place is that she is the author of a new book that's just been released. It's titled Little Failures, yes. Learning to Build Resilience Through Everyday Setbacks, Challenges, and Obstacles. Um, uh, Alicia is kind enough to be doing a, a book giveaway contest. So please look in the show notes uh, for details about that. And Alicia is also the host of a podcast. It's called the Yoke in Abundance Wise Women Podcast. And her company has uh, that same name, Yoke in Abundance. So you can find her at yokeandabundance.com. So uh, congratulations on the book. You know, we're going to take a deeper dive uh, in, into that. But uh, it, it's, it's, such a, it's, it's such a great topic. And I love the way you framed it uh, in the book. So thank you for sharing that with me in advance. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it's really exciting to get to call yourself a published author. And I know you are too, but does that ever get old? No, it's exciting. I mean, I've, I've, I've got another book in my future and I do look forward um, to that first day, as I'm sure you've experienced when that box of books arrives and you see it's actually a real physical thing. That's exciting. It's not just in your imagination anymore. <laughs> It's not just not just that digital proof of uh, the cover um, that that you get to share as I as I saw you doing on social media, but yes, a real physical thing uh, as well as a Kindle book, I presume. Mm -hmm. Yep. So either 
either format. So again, that book is uh, Little Failures, and, and we'll come back and um, take a deeper dive in, into that book. But, you know, Alicia, as we, uh, as I, I know you know, we do here, uh, my favorite question is to ask about, from your background, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Oh my goodness. In preparing for this, I was like making a list. Well, which one do I want to talk about? Because there's quite a few that I had to list out in the book. But the thing that I think I landed on, so it's it's the one that felt the most shameful and it's the one that's brought me the most learning. Um, I opened a yoga studio while I worked in corporate America and I, I did nothing but lose money during that experience. And it, it led me to bankruptcy. So, but it also led me to the greatest learning experiences of my life. And so while it's the most painful and at the time felt the most shameful, it's definitely my favorite. And so I did, so I did inadvertently end up previewing that a little bit in, <laughs> uh, in introducing you. So, um, so gosh, maybe we can just kind of explore a little bit more of like what, of what happened. I'm sure the, the, the hopes and the excitement of opening a studio, the challenge perhaps of doing that while you had a full-time job, like what, what were some of the factors that that led to the the, the problems with the practice yeah, with, the, you, with, with the studio? Sorry. Yeah, you know. Well, first, I, I should say there's this quote. Um, it's by a football player whose name is escaping me, but it's something along the lines of. I used to have it taped to my cubicle wall when I worked in corporate America, but the right amount of money. And the right amount of praise can keep you locked in the wrong job forever. And when I worked in corporate America, it was the right amount of money. It was the right amount of praise. But I always knew it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And so I ended up opening this yoga studio. It was that culmination of passion and still sort of seeking for that, like your place in life, you know, your purpose. And I had a lot of passion. I had a lot of energy. I would work full time, but I would go in in the morning and teach my yoga class at lunch breaks. I'd run payroll and send newsletters. And then in the evening, I would go teach more classes. And my energy was really divided between those things. You know, I was bootstrapping that yoga studio, which was part of the problem. And I never felt like I could fully give myself over to that business. And so it occurred debt and it was, it was hard. And I think a a lot of it was that I just hadn't cut my teeth in business yet. And so after about five years of trying to do both full time, basically it, it was too much. And so instead of it being my escape route out of corporate America, it really became something that kept me stuck for a little bit longer. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it happens a lot where an entrepreneur has an idea. They want to test the waters, whether that's uh, a software business or being a speaker or being a coach. It's a really common thing to say, well, let, let me try it part time. Let me see if there's some sort of traction and then decide going forward. Um, I imagine one of the challenges with 
a yoga studio is, is just the, the difficult realities of there's a lease, right? It's hard to dip a toe into the water with something as, as serious or even long-term as, as that lease, right? Absolutely. I mean, you've got a lot of overhead. You're paying teachers along with yourself. Some you're trying to pay yourself, but you're paying teachers first. You're paying lease first. And you tier how you pay the teachers. But what a lot of folks don't realize is you don't make money with a yoga studio in the yoga classes. You make money by training teachers. And it took me way too long to figure that out. Um, I just thought if I teach a lot of great yoga classes, if you build it, they will come, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a myth. So, um, and then by the time you realized, like you said, the money was in training other instructors, it was just, it was a little too late or you were too worn out on the business. Yeah. The, the, it Just too burnt out at that point. I'd brought on a, mm-hmm. I'd brought on a business partner, which was great. It infused some energy into it, but she ended up getting thyroid cancer. She's fine now, mm-hmm. which is okay. the great part of the story. Um, But, you know, it ended up just being a learning experience. However, that debt followed me into my next, my next endeavor. And, you know, bankruptcy is not something a lot of people talk about. There's so much shame involved in bankruptcy. And I didn't, I didn't know that I knew people who had experienced bankruptcy and, you know, were taught bootstrapping is a good thing and then pay your debts and figure it out. But when other people aren't learning out loud when they experience it, and I really believe in, they're not doing what you're doing here. You know, they're not talking about it publicly. And so, you know, there's so much shame that gets built up around that. And you think you're the only one that's ever experienced that when it turns out that most entrepreneurs fail like five times before they hit the right business and get them there. And bankruptcy is actually created for entrepreneurs in some ways so that will help drive our economy forward. So it we're not a horrible lean on the society. We're actually helping drive the economy, the economy yeah. forward. So were there lessons learned, um, of things that you would do differently or maybe are doing differently to try to prevent a business failure from cascading into personal bankruptcy? Absolutely. You talk about, you talk, well, you test the market a lot more, right? You test, test, test. Um, and, you know, don't slip things into the water. The yoga studio for me, I felt like was slipping it into the water. And I think if I'd gone full force in some ways and left corporate America, that might've actually even been um, better than just having half my energy divided. So I did take that into the coaching business and was a, and I quit corporate America to move into the coaching business. I tested the waters first. So I, before I completely quit my job, I did like 25, um, client interview, potential client interviews before and had built out so much more before really launching. And I wouldn't have done that had I not failed with that yoga studio. You know, it's kind of compounded little failures here, right? Um, That one little failure led to another little failure. 
So it's, it's hard to not, not separate the two, even though it gets a little messy when we talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I can see there, there's that conundrum of, because I've, I've talked to some or heard some entrepreneurship experts who say, you've got to be all in. And there's that, that lack of a safety net maybe is both terrifying and or motivating. Like, you know, when people talk about the need to hustle, like, I, you know, if you're, if, if you're sort of muddling along and surviving versus saying that this, I don't have that corporate job, I've got to figure out how to make it work. I'm not, I'm not second guessing you. I'm try, trying to just kind of relate to like what that conundrum was of leaving the job in the corporate world or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, and it was really scary the second time around because I'm like, look, I've failed this first time around of doing it. So am I just going to fail again? However, when you leave the, when you do leave corporate America and you don't have that second income to rely on and, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm single, I don't have a partner. And so it was really just me trying to figure it out. And the power of broke has been really motivating. It's actually been really fantastic for me getting to where I need to be in my business. Like those mistakes did set me up for a lot of success now in my work. And so I finally hit a stride in my business and I feel, I just, I feel like what happened with that little mistake is that little mistake, big mistake, favorite mistake, whatever you want to call it. It gave me a foundation of thinking it can't be worse than that. I hit my, my very worst fear came true and oh my God, I made it through. Like I got through the other end of things and I'm resilient and I'm capable and I can problem solve and I can call in my community. So it was a really, it was one of those things where God, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And I'm so glad that I experienced it because it showed me who I was. Mm-hmm. And you've, you, you already answered the, the question I was, I was going to ask about, you know, bringing lessons learned from the yoga studio into your second business as a coach. And I, I appreciate that you're sharing that the, you know, um, adaptability to, to go about things a different way and to build upon. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 first experience in in this coaching business, uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Of, you know, does having that failure and being so willing to share about that and not try to carve that off and bury it underground or hide that from people, um, do, does does that help you become a better coach? Does that help others relate to you? Do you think in a different way? Absolutely. And I made a really big decision in the beginning. I just, the learning out loud piece is so important. And I thought, you know, I've built, I built my brand, my coaching around like our feelings and our emotions are never bad or wrong. And that everything that happens in our life is really, I don't know that I want to say everything happens for a reason, but everything is a learning opportunity if we want to frame it that way. And So I think being able to be honest and talk through really hard things absolutely gives my clients permission to be honest and talk through hard things too, because they, they know that maybe it's not the same hard thing, but they know that I've, it's not all been rainbows for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, um, there there are analogies I can think of. Let's say when it comes to sports, somebody who is the greatest individual performer as an athlete isn't necessarily the best coach because right. they might not understand how somebody else just can't just do it the way they yeah. do. There are um, examples in a lot of sports where very successful coaches weren't actually very good players. Um, there's a lesson to that. And I think of my, uh, my sister, she wouldn't, I don't think mind me sharing this. Um, she really, you know, she got really frustrated with math as a student growing up. My dad is an electrical engineer. He would try to help her. I think that well, usually what would happen is my sister would get upset or cry or run off to her room. She ended up becoming a math teacher. Ah. And I think uh, if she was here, I can interview her about this someday, or I'll ask her next time we get together that I think those struggles help her empathize with her students. And I, I think she would agree, or I've heard her say before that that helped her, that struggle helped her be a better teacher. Absolutely. It's the reason why we entrepreneurs love listening to Guy Raz's podcast, right? Um, it, it's why we love listening to the failure stories of other entrepreneurs, because we know that they've been there and that they have grit and they had to problem solve their way out. And so that when we encounter those hard places and those hard times, we know someone else has been there and they've done it and that it's possible. Like if they got themselves out of that mess, well, surely I can get myself out of my mess too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and speaking of messes, when you talk about, you know, whether it's podcasts or um, other stories, um, my wife and I just last night finished watching the Hulu dramatization of uh, the, the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos story. Oh, the dropout. Yeah. Have you watched that? Um. I have not watched that yet, but I've been following, I've been following that case really closely. And, and so I think one takeaway of it is that her little failures early on compounded into a huge disaster because at least as portrayed there or in, in the book, bad blood, or like there, there didn't seem to be a lot of reflection in moving forward. There was a lot of, um, you know, blaming and, you know, distancing herself from mistakes or there, there was more denial than there was acceptance of the mistake that would then maybe have let her move forward in a, a better way. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up because in the research for Little Failures, um, I, I found that people who are People who are successful, after they fail, they typically do four things that people who aren't ultimately successful do. And the first thing that they do is they allow themselves the time and space to grieve what happened, so really feel the feelings around it. And that's why I love your podcast so much is because you're you're talking about it, you're talking about the emotions behind it, you're talking about what happened. So first you grieve it. Second, you call in community, but not just any community. You call in people who are going to help you really talk through and process what happened in a productive way. The third thing you do is you do like a SWOT analysis of what happened, right? Like that thoughtfulness that could have helped her, like, all right, what were the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats? All right, let's revise. <laughs> let's like do it differently this next time. 
And then, and then the fourth thing they do is they take recovering action. So after you've done the SWOT analysis, like what are those recovering actions that you can take to, to like have a foundation of learning and growth mm-hmm. from the mistake or the failure itself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and thank you for sharing that framework. I mean, I, there, there are parallels like to what you said a minute ago, you know, everything is a learning opportunity if we frame it that way. That's, yeah. that's, the view on mistakes, you know, that, that, that my guests and I share here on the podcast and, you know, thinking through and processing what happened. I'd be curious, one, one topic that's come up a little bit, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Like how do we find the balance between ref- analyzing or reflecting or having those feelings without then dwelling on it or beating ourselves up too much? So like how, how, how do you make sure someone doesn't get stuck in pro- grieving or processing? And that they then move forward to taking recovering action. Yeah, there's a couple things that I think it's really good if folks can do it. So like, try to give yourself a designated grieving time. Like there are, there are obviously some things that are going to take longer to get over. But it, like, if you're someone, I'm someone that likes to ruminate. And so there will hit this point where I'm like, enough, enough. Like this is no longer productive it's like more self-indulgent than it is productive. Be self-aware to know where you are on that spectrum and give yourself like a period of time. Like I'm going, if it's a little mistake, like maybe it's okay. I'm going to dwell on this this weekend and then I'm done. I'm going to hit Monday. I'm going to get, I'm going to lace up my tennis shoes. I'm going to go for a run and then it's over. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that folks can do that's a little bit more active is a friend of mine does, her name is Jade E B, and I interviewed her in my book and she does um, actually a grief ritual around failures, basically. So if she's experienced a loss of some sort, a mistake, she didn't get what she wanted. She allows herself at the end of each week, she like lights a candle, she lights some sage, she actually physically writes down what it is that she's grieving and why she's grieving it. And then she does some, a little bit more self-reflection of, all right, what did she gain because she didn't get that thing? And I think that sometimes when we have a mistake, it's like, sometimes we gain something from the mistake. Um, And so reflect on that. And then when you're done, you're done, like burn the paper or something, like make it a ritual, be done with it. And then like, think about what are the recovering actions that you could take to move that forward and Mm -hmm. like literally get back on the horse, like do what you need to do, write it down, even call a friend if you have to power of community to -hmm. take that recovering action to move yourself forward. So uh, again, just to to reset a little bit, our guest is Alicia Wilford. Her book, uh, her new book, it's titled Little Failures, Learning to Build Resilience Through Everyday Setbacks, Challenges, and Obstacles. Um, You know, I had a chance to interview um, months ago, uh, Dan Pink, who wrote a book about the power of regret. And we explored a little bit, like, what's the the difference between a mistake and a regret. So I'd like to maybe explore the same thing with you here. I'd be curious mm. your thoughts on the difference or complementary nature between mistakes and failures. What do those words mean to you? Mm. Mistakes feel more like stumbles to me. And 
failure feels like I'm running a race and I face planted and it took me a long time to get back up. That's what it feels like. If I have to think about like what the feeling between the two is, that's the feeling mistake and failure. Yeah, that's what the feeling of the difference is between the two. And a mistake doesn't feel as weighty to me as failure does. And I know that on your podcast, you really like, you frame it as a mistake. I think that's good. And I think it's great for us to actually, if it was something that was a failure, to allow ourselves to call it failure. So many people don't want to use that word. I mean, I I interviewed, I kid you not, over 50 people for my book, like talking about this. And nine times out of 10, they would start the conversation by saying, I really don't like that word. Sure. Right. I hear hear similar things. Like even uh, I work with people when I'm consulting or coaching people, the word problem is a word that some people have a real allergy to. Isn't that fascinating? I, 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 th- I think so. I mean, I've wow. had environments or coaches where like to me, you know, uh, the, a problem is a fact it exists. It's there kind of like this coffee mug is there, but then there's the feelings around it though. Yeah. Yes. And I think that one of the things that I learned in my research was that the pain of failure is actually what helps us not repeat the mistake. So there's so much value in actually calling it what it is, because when we call it what it is, it's helping us remember to not do it again, to to like take a different recovering action, right? Not do the same thing over and over like a crazy person, but to like change the action and have that foundation of learning. So maybe the way you're framing it, a mistake is a littler, little failure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, a a mistake, I mean, here, here's, here's my, I hadn't thought about this in advance. So my, uh, my pause to think about it. um, I I think to me, maybe a mistake could lead to a failure, but Mm -hmm. the thing about failure is that a failure could happen as no fault of our own. Absolutely. So let's say if somebody starts a business that might have otherwise been okay, but then, oh, the pandemic hit, that mm-hmm. business might fail. I don't think you'd look, look back and, you know, somebody might say, well, it was a mistake to start it right before a pandemic. Well, who, who like, okay, don't do that again. Like that, right. that's right. Um, so that, that's just, just one other thought there that maybe sometimes failures come around where we might want to understand what happened. But that doesn't, I mean, maybe it doesn't always mean that there's something different we could have done about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, failure, mistakes. We fear um, making mistakes so much. Um, That's where perfectionism comes in. We fear failure. We fear mistakes. Uh, There's a word for the the chronic and persistent fear of failure. It's called a tiki phobia. And only like four to 5% of the population actually have it. But a lot of us can relate to some of its symptoms. So some of its symptoms are like being really critical of yourself or others, 
or only thinking that what you're doing in the world or whatever project you have is worthwhile if it's absolutely perfect, right? And so I think the value in us talking about mistakes or failures is we're saying, listen, I was brave. I I tried something. I wanted something and, and I tried and I went after it and I didn't get it right. I didn't even come perfect. I didn't even come close to perfect, but I tried and it set me up to do better the next go around. And so that's where I'm hoping that people get is that they're able to see that these mistakes or little failures and sometimes big failures, that they don't feel good, but those 10 seconds of bravery that you had to get you past the perfectionism, um, even if it led to a mistake, it set you up for something greater later. Mm-hmm. And one thing I appreciated that you wrote about in the book, Little Failures, was the idea of planning for failures, but making those little failures in the process of producing the book. Could you share a little bit um, about that and how those little failures helped you create what seems like a really good end result product here as the published book? Yeah. Well, I think, okay, so there's a story in the book, Um, Marley Parker. She is a scientists. And she typically, she goes out on boats, like in 2018, I think she spent like 105 days at sea. So she's just really cool. Um, there's another word for it. She's awesome. Um, and she said that scientists always plan for failure. Like if you're on an expedition on a boat at sea, like things, equipment's going to break, storms are going to come. Um, you're going to lose equipment to the sea. Like something is going to go wrong. So you have to plan for it all along the way. And there was one time where they were like dodging a hurricane, right? And so they couldn't deploy their normal equipment to get the research that they wanted. And they, they said, let's just try. Let's see if we can like weld together some, some stuff we have here and create a smaller piece of equipment that will still get it. Within 10 hours, they had done it and they had innovated this whole new piece of equipment just because they tried. Now, they could have like they could have spent 10 hours and not had a piece of equipment at the end and still not been able to get it. But they got to say at the end of the day, not only did they try, but they succeeded because they tried. And now they have two pieces of equipment that do the same thing in different types of weather. And that's what mistakes can lead us to, you know? So, so, I'm sorry. No, it's the the plan. If we plan for it, like they were, they had the equipment to weld a new machine together. And so then with the writing, um, you know, at some point you just try. Um, I think, you know, there's a, I forget who said this to me, but you know, no, no author ever writes a perfect first draft. So can you talk a little bit about the process of feedback and editors and and refining the mistake, the the failures out of it before it goes to print? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, um, listen, I'm my first draft of anything. You don't want to see it. I'm just, you know, I tried to turn in first drafts in college and, you know, got really humbling comments from the professor because I turned in a first draft. Well, the process of writing a book, I mean, you have to write, and I hope I can say this, a shitty first draft, right? Like you can, yep. mm-hmm. 
a shitty first draft is exactly is a great first draft, but then you have to get feedback before it's comfortable to get feedback. And then you have to rewrite and incorporate that in. And then, oh my God, like you have to send it to beta readers. It's like, you have to take that baby (laughs) and you have to send it to people and you're asking them for feedback on this thing that's not even done yet. And that often, like that process felt like mistakes and failures because they're pointing them out to you over and over and over again. But the bigger failure is not sharing it with other people first, right? right? Yeah, because yeah. that, that could then lead to, it's better to get that feedback, I think, early and often in a private way instead of getting feedback through, let's say, one or two star book reviews on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be just, I mean, I know that they're coming, right? <sighs> like if you go, listen, sure. when I started this book, I went and looked at oh. one of my favorite authors and the reviews on her book. And she's a big deal, right? Liz Gilbert. I mean, who, I, who doesn't like as Liz Gilbert is what I thought. Turns out a lot of people don't like Liz Gilbert and they are not afraid to say it in the review. Yeah. yeah. So you can't be all things to all people. Not everybody is going to love your work, whether it's a book or a speech or a podcast. Um, I, maybe I'll do this because this might help as I start into the process of writing something new. I was going to write a blog post once of looking at books in my field that are super popular, award-winning, highly acclaimed books and look at and, and print some of the one-star reviews. Not to, mo- not to make anyone feel bad, but as that reminder to myself or to others, not everyone's going to love what you do. Yeah. And it's not, okay, so um, Tara Moore, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She wrote a book called Playing Big. And in that book, she talks about how when we get criticism, it's actually, you only get criticism if you're doing big things in the world. And so it's a great reminder. It was around that time that I went and looked at Elizabeth Gilbert's reviews. It was around that time because I realized like, yeah, it's actually a sign that you're in the arena. You're playing the game. You know, it's it's a badge yeah. of honor, I think. Yeah. Well, if uh, back to a phrase you used earlier, if we frame it that way. <laughs> if we frame it that way. <laughs> yeah. um, and look, I mean, you know, and, and, and there can be legitimate feedback even after the publication that you could then learn from and apply to future projects. I, I don't mean yeah. to discount negative reviews, but... Um, I, 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 I don't wish that on you, but it may happen. So if it's in the category of planning for failure, brace yourself for, ooh, that's going to sting. Mark, I, I'm so glad you brought this up. I mean, this is one of those things where it's my first book and I'm so proud of it. Like, I'm proud of it, but it's a first book, you know, like I want everybody to read it. I want to hear what people have to say about it. And it's okay. I'm viewing this as a learning experience and you know what? I'm ready to write the next one actually and starting and I'm going to take all of the, I'm going to take the constructive feedback that I get on this book and I'm going to take it into the writing of the next book. And you know what? That's exciting to me. There, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because there's two reactions you might know from other authors. You write that first book and people say, good, that's done. Never again. Or, okay, great. I know I, I have another book in me, so I'm glad to hear that from you, Alicia. Thank you. And you, what you're going to be on your, is it third book? Um, 
let's see. So, well, it, it's hard to count. I have three, three editions of one book. Um, another book that I co-authored, kind of a derivative version of that book that I co-authored. One that was an anthology with other authors. And then one that I wrote most recently, um, Measures of Success. So you'd think that would be easy to add up, but um, there's some <laughs> fuzzy math. More than one, more than one, more than uh, more than three. But um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about um, that, that that you wrote in the book, I thought was interesting. Sort of like the um, the implications, thinking about um, gender mm. or race when it comes mm. to um, public mistakes or you know um, you know failing out loud, as you called it. So one thing my wife and I talked about along the way and at the end of that, the, the, the series, the dropout with Elizabeth Holmes was thinking of the implications of, was there a difference in how the world reacted to her because she was a woman? Did that set back other women? I mean, there, there's probably endless debate over any of that, but, but you talked about some research where maybe there are some implications where somebody like me, um, I will admit to, all sorts of, um, as, as people might call it, unearned privilege, you know, um, as a, a straight middle-aged white guy with you know, reasonable economic background. Um, is there a certain privilege somebody like me might have that, that women or minorities um, might not benefit from the same way when they're so public, if they're so public about a failure? Yeah. I, thank you so much for asking this question. I really believe in learning out loud. I think it's so important because when we learn out loud, it does help others be brave. It helps us call in the community that we can connect to and that will help us digest what happened. However, like as you said, what I learned is the implications are not the same for men and women. So there's one research study by Heather Sorensen in 2017. So this was just five years ago. It was of 9,000 surgeons. And so if a surgeon had a death of a patient following a surgery, and it didn't matter what the cause, so whether it was the surgeon's fault or not, when that happened, women, female surgeons would received 54% fewer referrals than their male counterparts, purely based on their gender. So we're talking about a loss of respect and a loss of income that like huge ramifications, purely based on gender. And now death is never the failure outcome that any of us want or are going for. But I think that this is such an important study and something to be really cognizant of in that you know, um, Rashma Sujani talked about in her TEDx talk um, how we socialize um, boys to be brave and outgoing and we're socializing girls to be perfect and to look pretty. And, and so that there's such a rub there. It's like, yes, we want girls to be brave, but right now the ramifications when girls are brave or when women are brave that like there's a disconnect right now. And so if we can all be aware of that, we can start to change that narrative. But unless we're aware of it, we can't do anything about it. Yeah, admitting uh, a problem or admitting a failure, uh, again, a first step to trying to change things in, in, in pretty meaningful and serious ways. Um, you know, I've one thought um, 
bounce off of you because you know I, I do most of my work in healthcare. There are often mistakes in, let's say, surgery. There can be bad outcomes. You could call that a failure, mm-hmm. complications, or you know, a, a bad outcome, a failure doesn't always mean a mistake was made. Is I think maybe one other connection um, for people who do similar work to me in similar realm. But um, there, there's one other thing that. Uh, you might find interesting that there are different studies that show, I I think this is believed to be very consistently true now that doctors or surgeons who admit a mistake to a patient or to a family member, they're far less likely to be sued as a result. Now I would be curious then back to your point of um, Sorensen's research around the surgeons. I would be really curious how that breaks down in different demographic lines is, is the, the less likely to be sued equally true for men, women, people of different uh, races or ethnicities. Don't you wish we could get all of those research in the researchers in a room (laughs) together and be like, please answer this question for us. Yeah. And I don't know if that's research that's, that's been done yet. So I don't know. There, there may be a PhD student somewhere working on, working on that, but yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll link in the show notes that, that TEDx talk, um, that, that you mentioned. Um, so, so, uh, Alicia, one other thing I wanted to, um, well, here, I'm going to own up to a mistake real quick before I ask one other final question. And this may happen a lot. Like I try to be very careful about not ever mispronouncing a guest's name, Got it, though. but because you'll probably remember when we did the pre-call, I made a, I, I had a little failure where I, I called you Alicia and you, you know, you kindly corrected me and something that it's, it's pronounced Alicia or, you know, however you put it, but um, that little mistake meant uh, not making a big, embarrassing public mistake. Mm, yeah. And my name episode. is so hard. <laughs> and there's that great, um, there's that great LinkedIn feature where you can uh, click and hear you say your first and last name in your own voice. I, know, I love that feature. Like who came up with that? It's such a great idea. Somebody with a name that gets mispronounced a lot. Um, yeah. My first name's easy. Last name, Graven gets mispronounced uh, a bunch of different ways. So um, our, our guest again, Alicia Wilford, hopefully I said that well. Okay, perfect. Good. Um, the book again is Little Failures. And, and the last thing I wanted to ask you, the name of your company and your podcast Yoke in Abundance. So I was curious to hear the origin, the meaning of that name to you. Thank you. Uh, yoke in yoga, which my background is yoga. So, you know, I did, I, I mentioned I opened that yoga studio and I have been studying yoga, honestly, since I was a little kid. So my mom taught me yogic relaxation techniques to put me to sleep when I was little. Um, so I've been fascinated with the path of yoga and it's really, a, it's, it's a spiritual path as well as a physical practice. And I think we forget that and lose sight of that. But even though I don't practice the physically the way I used to, I still use that framework in my life and in my coaching business. So in yoga, um, to yoke means to bring together, right? Oh, so like, okay. I like to think about bringing together the mind and the body through the breath or with clients, you could think about it. Each of us have a yoke to bear, but hopefully we're choosing our yoke. Um, 
instead of just having that yoke put on top of us. And then abundance. I want to live a life of abundance, which to me, that means a life of gratitude. And so uh, that's what I hope I'm putting out into the world. So that's where that came from. That's very nice. So thank you for the the origin story uh, on the name. I can see why that has uh, so much meaning to you. So uh, again, you can learn more about Alicia and the work she, uh, she does as a coach uh, for women. Um, yokeandabundance.com. Uh, the book again, uh, congratulations uh, on, uh, on that again, Alicia. It's Little Failures with the subtitle, uh, Learning to Build Resilience Through Everyday Setbacks, Challenges, and Obstacles. So you can find the book um, online bookstores. You can find it yokeandabundance.com slash little failures. Um, so uh, Alicia, thank you so much for doing the episode. I, I hope you don't uh, view all of this as a mistake or a failure. This was such a pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. And yeah, I'm I'm totally not a mistake, not a failure. So thank you again and and congrats with the book. Again, to learn more about Alicia and her book and to enter to win a free signed copy, go to markgraven.com slash mistake 166. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.